0: Be back again with you. Good to see all of you here this morning. I trust the Lord has given you a a blessed week. And uh, so I invite you to turn to John chapter one. What a what a day that will be when we all in heaven together are singing, oh sing hallelujah. That's going to be a time, I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. I know we're told, some are already there, some are already rejoicing, but imagine when the whole of the church, from beginning to end, is gathered. Hmm. It's going to be something. Follow with me as I read this morning from uh, John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him. father's side he has made him known our father we thank you for this lord's day and for the opportunity to come once again to uh, to worship together to sing to give to praise you we pray lord that you would bless this time of ministry the ministry of your word Uh, to us we desire to Worship you through it. And we desire to learn from it. We desire to be yielded to it. All of these things are in our hearts. You know our hearts. Better than we do. And so I pray Lord that you would give your blessing. That your spirit would control this time. And that Christ would be lifted high. That we might worship him in truth and in our spirits today as you have commanded. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking now at the Lord's... We've looked at the Lord's inexpressible person, His infinite power, His impeccable humanity, and now we're looking at the Lord's incarnate being. His incarnate being. John's introduction to this gospel thus far, and of the divine word, has given a brief view of the person, power, and humanity of Christ. Now John gives further a further glimpse of the eternal God becoming a human being without ceasing to be God. This is the importance of the verse and of the passage that God became flesh, We see in the beginning of this, uh, of in verse 14, the words, And the Word became flesh. This is the same Word that existed in verse 1, it, back in eternity past, who was with God, the Father, and with the Spirit, and is now become presented as one of us. Verse 14, then, stands as a summary Of the entire book. It provides us with the indivisible and incomprehensible truth of divinity and humanity fused in one person. God and man in one body. This is the ground uh, of genuine true faith, and salvation is not possible. Without believing these truths and obeying its message. Turn to Second Thessalonians with me, chapter one. Second Thessalonians one. Notice what the apostle says. He's speaking to the Thessalonians here of the faith that they have in Christ and the reward that is theirs at the Lord's return. And then he says this of those who do not believe and of those whom will be judged by Christ at his second coming. He says in verse 8 that Jesus will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who are the ones that do not know him. Uh, They are those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They don't believe it. And they don't obey it. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. John says in chapter 3 verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These are serious words. They deal with eternity. The Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us is a serious matter to the eternal existence of humanity that John relates again and again in his writings. For example. 1 John chapter 4 verse 2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Is from God. 2 John chapter 7. Many deceivers have gone into the world. Those Who are these deceivers? They are those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver, is the deceiver and the antichrist. So we can see very clearly that John's statement about the word becoming flesh is a serious statement. John states that there was a time and a place That the eternal word became or came into the human race. His birth is declared in detail. And like us, he grew into boyhood and finally into manhood. He ate and drank. He slept and worked like everyone else. He felt, he felt pain. He got tired and weary. He wept. He rejoiced and marveled. He got angry. He showed compassion. He was tempted, he prayed, and through every circumstance, and through every event of his life, he submitted his will to the will of his heavenly Father. Now when John says the word became flesh, he was saying something that was quite new and startling at that time. The concept of the word is a difficult one to comprehend. The word logos in the Greek language can mean word and it can also mean reason. Reason. And the reason that this word is defined like that and having to do with reasoning is because that human beings are emotional creatures. We may have all sorts of feelings and sensations and perceptions and desires within our minds at any given time. But without some vehicle to transmit those emotions and perceptions and feelings, no one would ever know what we're about or what we're thinking or, or anything, we have to be able to communicate it. And the communication, the vehicle to transmit those inner feelings and thoughts are words. Words. Now, if you're like me, most men are not really good with uh, expressing their feelings and emotions in words. I know I'm not. Uh, women seem to be far more adept at doing that than men do. However, God has chosen language as the medium for which we communicate these things from one to another. And you see, this is the problem with our social structure today. They want to eliminate, they want to eliminate anybody expressing themselves so that there's a sense of reason. In what's being said. They want to cancel out. Anyone who speaks up with an opinion. That doesn't match their opinion. And they will not listen. Jesus. The word. Is the conveyor. Understand this now. Is the conveyor of the thoughts and feelings of God. The thoughts and feelings of God. All that God is and does. Is related to us by His Son. The Son who is the Word. Supernaturally became flesh. It was a supernatural event. This expresses the reality of the incarnation of Christ. God in the second person taking on humanity to himself. The infinite became finite. The eternal one became limited to time and space. The invisible one became visible. And the creator entered the realm of the created. Now, God had already revealed himself to mankind... In several different ways in the past, he revealed himself through creation. We see that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, that humanity is without any excuse because all they have to do is look around and see that there was a creation. It didn't just happen. and he revealed himself through scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21. But God chose in these last days to reveal himself through the word, through his son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 verses 1 and 2. Long ago and at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers By the prophets. There was this word of God being given out to people. But in these last days. He has spoken to us by his son. The greatest prophet. Whoever was. The son. Whom he appointed heir over all things. Through whom he created the world. So when we compare verse 14. With verse 1 we can see that John makes a stark difference in how the word is conceptualized. For example, in verse 1, he uses the little term, me. In the beginning, was. Remember that? The word was is the Greek word, me. It means to be, to exist. And it is in the, <clears throat> here, it is in the, Imperfect tense, which means it existed in the past and continues to exist in the present. It, prote- it, it portrays a continuing existence. But in verse fourteen, he uses a different word. He uses the word "ginomai," which is a which is a Greek word that simply means to become or to enter. To enter into or assume a certain condition. And and the word in verse 14, this word ginomai is in the aorist tense. Which means that that it started at a particular point in time. It it happened at a particular point. This is the same word that he uses in verse 3. To speak of the things that were made. So the first word in verse 1 deals with eternity. And the latter word in verse 14 deals with time and space. He became flesh. He took on a human body. The word flesh in verse 14 has no moral connotation to it. It is simply a word that is expressing The body, the human body, the human shell that we all exist in, that our eternal souls exist in. The Word possessed this same kind of body at His conception and at His subsequent birth. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body. If we had been living in Jesus' day and could have seen Jesus, we would have seen that He looked just like everybody else. Just another man with a body like all other people. But He wasn't just another man, was He? This affirms that Jesus full humanity, <clears throat> that Jesus has a full humanity and verse 1 affirms that he is full deity. So what, what do we have? We have a man who is God and God who is a man. Even though Jesus assumed a human body and nature, he never ceased to be divine. He always remained fully God. Hebrews 13, verse 8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. <clears throat> Now the true human nature of Jesus is taught throughout the Gospel of John. And in, in John's other letters. John tells about how he tired and thirsted and hungered and wept. All the emotions that we feel he felt every one of them. Somehow, in an inexplicable way that we will never fully understand. The divine son of God became the human Christ Fully united as God and man. In other words, he is both the Son of God and the Son of man. (coughs) 1 John chapter 10. (coughs) Uh, Excuse me, 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. John chapter 14 verse 21. For the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. So Jesus very clearly portrayed himself as the son of God and the Son of Man. This has always been a truth that Satan has tried to thwart and discredit. In the 5th century, there was a significant attack on the nature of Christ as the God-Man. One century before that, in the 4th century, Athanasius had fought for the deity of Christ at the council of Nicaea against the Arian heresy that taught that the Son of God was not co-equal with God the Father. Athanasius and the others with him fought that battle and won that battle at the council of Nicaea. In 451 A.D., the Creed of Chalcedon was held to answer... The most critical question about Christ's nature as both God and man. Philip Schaff writes in his book, The Creed of the, the Creeds of Christendom, he writes of the Council of Chalcedon, and this is what he says. While the first council of Nicaea had established the eternal pre existent Godhead of Christ, the Chal- Chalcedonian Creed relates to the incarnate Logos as He walked upon the earth and sits on the right hand of the Father. The Creed states this, We then, following the Holy Fathers with all one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. To be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union. In other words, they're saying that because he became human, he did not cease to be God and vice versa. Being God, he did not cease to be human. But preserve and being preserved, and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people in John's day found this very difficult to believe, that God, the true God, could become man. That God could be a man was inconceivable in their thought, particularly among the Gnostic teachers. Now, there was a group of heretics in John's day who were called the Docetists. And their name, groups were named in, in that day generally by the people that started the group or their teachers or by some Greek word that was that was explanatory about their beliefs. The Docetists were were called Docetists because of the Greek word dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. It had to do with reality. They believed that in their Gnostic heritage, the Docetists were Gnostic, they believed that matter was evil and the spirit was good. And so in their mind, Christ could not have had a material body because it would have been evil. They taught instead that his body was merely a phantom. He just appeared to have a body. It wasn't real. And so, as the Christ, then the Spirit of Christ came upon him at his baptism but left him at the crucifixion. <clears throat> which is a denial of the deity of Christ and his bodily person. These teachings were prevalent in John's day. While at Ephesus, one of John's Gnostic opponents, a man by the name of Serenthus, was a docetist. He continually opposed John's teaching about Christ as the living word in the flesh. And John writes in his first epistle to warn people, to warn the church of this heresy. This is what he says. If you'd like to turn to it, it's 1 John chapter 4. This is one that you really need to know because this is going on today as, as it was back then. Gnosticism is really not dead. There are many that still believe in this, this heresy. <clears throat> and they deny, they deny the deity of Christ bodily in the flesh. Notice what he says, verses one to three, first John four. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. How many spirits are there to hear? There are thousands. With twists and turns and variations. Do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Well how do you do that? He warns. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many. We have them living right among us. By this you know the Spirit of God. How do you know that, John? Here he tells us. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Now what does he mean by that statement? He means the same thing that he said in John, in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Same thing. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ or Jesus is not from God. It does not confess that He came in the flesh as the God-man. You have to add that in because that's the context. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the spirit of Antichrist has been in the world ever since Jesus ascended back to the Father. He's not talking about the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation. He's talking about the spirit of the Antichrist, which is in many who do not confess that Jesus is God in the flesh. John would have nothing to do with these heretics. In fact, Eusebius, the church historian, records this about the, the Apostle John. John the Apostle once entered a bath to wash. Now, the baths were public in those days. <clears throat> and uh, they would come to the baths and they would wash and, and then leave. But but ascertaining, John ascertaining Cerinthus was within, leaped out of the place and fled from the door, not enduring to enter under the same roof with him, and exhorted those with him to do the same, saying, let us flee lest the bath fall in, as long as Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within." now what would people today call john what would they say of john making such a statement oh you're not you're not very tolerant are you you're not very loving are you see it it all depends on your definition of what love is Is loving people as Christians just mere tolerance of who they are and what they say and what they do and what they believe? I say no, it is not. I say true love is telling the truth. Warning people of the danger. The eternal danger. Jesus, John took very seriously the error of the Gnostics. And that's why he makes this statement about Christ coming in the flesh. Jesus was a real, true man who was like all other men except for sin. Listen to the scriptures. Philippians two, verse seven. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Hebrews two fourteen. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word became flesh. Notice the next phrase in John's statement. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is an interesting selection of words. The word dwell is a word meaning to live literally in a tent. That's what it means to live in a tent. Now, I've slept in some tents over my years. Don't know that I would want to live in a tent, as we know tents. But you know, the history of the Jewish people was that of Bedouins. And they traveled from place to place, and they stopped. They would pitch their tents. They would set up their tents, and they would stay in their tents until they moved on to another place. This word literally means to take up one's residence in a tent, to encamp what does that give you? What does that remind you of? Certainly should remind you of Israel's wilderness wanderings and how that they lived in tents across and traveling around in the desert and the time where the tabernacle uh, of the Old Testament was, which was a symbol, that tent was a symbol of God's presence and His protection and His communion, their communion with Him. It also has the idea of dwelling temporarily from an earthly standpoint. If you'll recall, the Israelites erected the tabernacle in the wilderness over and over for the 40 years. And for even longer than that, after they left the wilderness, until a permanent temple was built. A permanent house. He is saying with these picturesque terms that Jesus the word came to earth in a temporary body to live with us for a short time he pitched his tent in his body just like we all are pitching our tents in our bodies for a short time these bodies won't last forever not not in their not in their state that they're in now they're temporary the time came when Jesus, at Jesus' resurrection when He put on His eternal body. The body that He now has. The body that He will have for eternity. The body that we will see as we dwell with Him in heaven forever and ever. Like Him, these bodies that we live in now our only tents to abide in for a while and they will be, dis- until they're discarded and we put on our permanent ones at the resurrection. That's the one I want. Quite frankly, I'm a little bit tired of this one. And the older I get, the more tired of it I get. The true dwelling place for the eternal souls of the saints is their newly created bodies that are made permanent for them to abide and live in heaven, which is our true country. Now, this same word, dwelt, is used or to dwell is used four times in the book of Revelation. I want you to look at them or at least one of them with me. Turn to Revelation. Well, let's just... Let's just breeze through each one of them. We're in good time this morning. Um, Revelation, first of all, Revelation chapter 7. We're going to see that this word is used to speak of those who dwell in heaven and God dwelling with them. First of all, Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. Notice what it says. Speaking of the, this great multitude from every nation, every language, every, every ethnic group on earth is gathered and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 15, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. He is going to shelter them. There it is. Turn to chapter 12, verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them, there's the word, dwell. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, and he knows his time is short. So they're dwelling in heaven with the Lord. He is their protection. He is their provision. Chapter 13, verse 6. This speaks of the, the beast and the powers that are given to him. It opened his it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling. What is His dwelling here? Heaven, the place where God is. And that is, and and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. The final one is in verse 21, verse 3, chapter 21, verse 3, where we see the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be their God. So, in Jesus Christ, God has come, get this, God has come to dwell with His people in a more intimate and permanent way than He did when He came to dwell with Israel. Remember how Israel, God dwelt with Israel. He brought them all out of Egypt, they went out across the desert, they sinned, he caused them to roam in the desert around for 40 years. During those 40 years, God dwelt with his people, but he did not dwell with them as he dwells with us now. He dwelt with them by being there over the tabernacle in the cloud with the fire He dwelt with them that way. We, we can see that in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. At that time, as God dwelt with Israel, He only spoke to Moses. Moses told the people what God had said. But now, He speaks to all people through His Son, who is the Word. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. Now now Christ's human flesh was God's tabernacle. And it is in Christ that God meets with man. And in Christ that man has dealings with God. We, having been washed in the precious blood of Christ, have access with boldness unto God, even the Father through Christ, who is our tabernacle. And the tabernacle of God. Among men. So the word became flesh. And he tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. For a short time. Temporarily. Until such time as he would indwell these tabernacles. That we have with his spirit. Notice the last phrase of the the passage. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is simply another visual from the tabernacle in the wilderness. As we look, as, as we look back at that, Spurgeon writes again, Over the mercy seat stood the cherubim, whose wings met each other. And beneath the wings of the cherubim there was a bright light, known to the Hebrew believer as the Shekinah. That light represented the presence of God. Immediately above that light, there may be seen at night a pillar of fire, and by day a spiral column of cloud that rose from it, which no doubt expanded itself into one vast cloud that covered the entire camp, and shielded all the Israelites from the blaze of the boiling sun. The glory of the tabernacles, I say, was the Shekinah. So what is he saying? He's saying that this light, this light that that was there was the presence of God among them. And the fire at night, the cloud during the day, and it was there all the time, constantly with them, constantly overshadowing them. Whenever the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. Listen to the description of the glory of this from Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Twice he said that. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was, whenever the cloud was taken up, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. In other words, their whole lives were ordered by the movement of God. Is that not what our lives should be? Ordered by the movement of God. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. The sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The Shekinah glory cloud that covered over the tabernacle and the Israeli camp refers to the radiance of the glory that appeared in the midst of the people. They saw the glory of the Lord all the time, day and night. It was God with them as they sojourned through life in the wilderness. Now, John says in that same way, the glory of God that dwelt among the people of Israel was now dwelling among the, among the people in the person of His Son, Jesus, who is the Word. That's what he's saying. The glory that once was in the tabernacle is now in the person of Christ. Now, it is likely that John is remembering the scene on the mount of transfiguration here where he saw the lord in his heavenly glory his description of him is like this and he was transfigured and his face shone like the sun now can you you know what it's like to step outside on a sunny day where there's no clouds And you look up and you know what it's like to try to look at the sun. You just can't look at it. It's too bright. This is what he says it was like. And his clothes became white as light. Peter speaks of that time in his epistle, second epistle. He writes, for we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we... When he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Hebrews one three, the radiance of the glory of He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And upholds everything by the power of His Word. The glory that Jesus demonstrated in His earthly life was the same glory as that of the Father. Because they possess the same essence of nature. They are the same. Jesus plainly said it in John 10 verse 30. I and the Father are one. When Stephen was about to be stoned to death, he looked up and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55. And that's how he will appear to us when he returns. When he returns, if it's during the day, there will be two lights in the sky. But one will be so much brighter than the other. For the sun that we know, could never outshine the sun of God. He is brighter than any. When he comes, then it will be the he will be the all, the the glory will be that of an all conquering Christ. Paul writes in Titus two thirteen that we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, the appearing of glory. This is what John says. We beheld His glory. Glory is that from the Father. He is the only Son from the Father. And as such, the only unique One who could save His people from their sins. Those words do not reflect origin, but uniqueness. He's unique. There's no one else like Him. Now, how do we know that? Well, because in Hebrews 11, verse 17, it says that Abraham offered up Isaac, his only son. When I was, was Isaac the only son that Abraham had? No. Abraham had other sons. But Isaac was the only unique one. He was the son of the covenant, the son of the promise. Salvation can only be had by believing God's truth and that truth is received by God's grace. Notice what he says. He is full of grace and truth. Now I'm not going to finish this portion of growing grace and truth. I'll come back to that I think next week. We'll stop right there and pick that up here at grace and truth because this is another really, really important point. That I need to expand on some. You say, "What's the purpose of all this?" Knowing that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, I'll tell you: the purpose of it is the the salvation of the eternal souls of men and women, boys and girls. That's the purpose. For in order to really be saved from one's sins, you have to believe that Jesus Christ came as God and became a man and died a substitutionary death for the sins of people. Without that, no one's saved. And so this is a very important thing. This is the point that the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and the cults miss. They are the ones that are the antichrists. Because they do not believe that the Son of God came in the flesh. That Jesus was both God and man. They'll say he was a great prophet. They'll say he was a son of God. They'll say all kinds of things. But that is not what scriptures teach. All right, let's um, let's end. Uh, Steve, you'll come back and take our family prayer request, please, brother. And after this, you will be dismissed. There.